When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, we've been reading those news reports that uh, when the president was first assembling his crew, his cabinet, uh, he was considering John Bolton maybe for secretary of state. But according to The Washington Post, the president does not like guys with mustaches. And John Bolton's got a mustache. I think the president is assembling a war cabinet. Presidents leave Rush Alert out as of today. To take a war to Bob Mueller, he's got Joe DeGeneva. Two more conspiracy theory TV lawyers are in instead. And now to actually have a real war, he's got John Bolton. And Mr. Watch Your Back F-bomb guy may be back in the mix as well. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who thinks he could clobber a 75-year-old in a fight, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. And this week, it's been all about firings in Trump land. The chaos machine began in the legal department. There were a few changes in the president's personnel handling the special counsel's Russia investigation. In came Joseph DeGeneva, a paranoid Fox News commentator who thinks the FBI and the Justice Department were engaged in a vast conspiracy to prevent Donald Trump from being elected. Out went John Dowd, who apparently thought it was a bad idea for Donald Trump to testify before Robert Mueller. Declining an offer of work was Ted Olson, a respected conservative lawyer. And being considered instead is Emmett T. Flood, who represented President Bill Clinton during his impeachment. Back in favor, apparently, is Mark Kazowitz, who was sidelined, but still kibitzes with the president from time to time. And stationary for the moment are Ty Cobb and Jay Sekulow, with reports surfacing that Don McGahn, the White House counsel, is looking for a way out. Oh, and also Michael Cohn, the porn specialist. He's still around, too. In other words, there's as much disarray and infighting on Trump's legal team as there is everywhere else in Trump land. What's behind all this Sturm und Drang? Later in the show, I'll be talking to Harry Littman, who worked in the Clinton Justice Department, about all that. But first, late in the evening yesterday, Trump tweeted thanks and goodbye to H.R. McMaster, his national security advisor, who is now being replaced by former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, never confirmed, John Bolton. Here to talk with me about McMaster's departure and Bolton's arrival is Fred Kaplan, Slate's War Stories correspondent. Hey, Fred, welcome to the show. Oh, good to be back. So thanks for being available on short notice. Um, this is you're the person we had to talk to about this. I guess whenever Trump fires somebody, the first question is about the how of the firing. So I guess you would have to say that um, McMaster got fired as national security advisor a little more politely than Rex Tillerson got fired as secretary of state. A little more politely, but you know, he it looked like he was about to get dangled on a string again. I mean, Maybe not for as long as Tillerson, but stories about McMaster's imminent departure, you know, have been going on for a few weeks. I, I read one story, and I'm not sure if this is true, that finally McMaster just resigned to just sort of sick of being 
left dangling. I mean, you know, yeah, let, let's say, Jacob, I, I knew that you were about to be fired as head of, of, of Slate. You know, how, many, how much respect is anybody going to show you in the next few weeks? You know, you line up meetings with salespeople and advertisers. Why should they talk to you? Well, I'm sure McMaster felt the same way. Why, why should anybody give a damn about what, what he was saying when he clearly uh, was going to be out in a couple of weeks? So, you know, I remember one time when I had a cat walking into my, <laughs> there was my cat on, on her back in the, in the bathtub toying with a bird that, that he was about to kill. I think Trump kind of enjoys that, too. Like, like McMaster's successor, John Bolton, he believes in torture. In fact, he, en- right. he doesn't just believe in it, he enjoys practicing it. Yeah, yeah, I didn't, I, I didn't think of the precise parallel there, but you're right. So, but why did he get rid of McMaster? Was it because McMaster challenged him and disagreed with him? I mean, that seems to be the main reason he fires people, or is there something more to it? I, I think that is the main reason, that there were also reports that he just didn't like McMaster's style. Look, McMaster is, is kind of an impolitique guy. He's never worked in Washington. He, he's one of these guys who, you know, comes off like the smartest guy in the room, and then Trump apparently doesn't like that. Uh, but, you know, I, I have to say... He doesn't want anybody both- smart in the room. He doesn't want anybody smart in the room at all. Yes, Bolton, I mean, Bolton makes McMaster look like a wallflower. I mean, Bolton is one of the most unabashedly arrogant and dislikable people who has ever occupied a high position in Washington. I mean, it'll be interesting to see if Trump may very well get sick and tired of the guy. Yeah, but Trump at the moment, the very fact that everyone dislikes Bolton is why Trump I think likes right. him. It's a, it's a finger and a thumb in the eye, right? It's a way for Trump yeah, to say fuck you right. to everybody. And, you know, John Kelly, a while back, I guess he gave up at some point, he was actively preventing, blocking Bolton from coming into the White House. I mean, Trump would say, he'd see Bolton on TV, on Fox, and say, hey, I want to talk to that guy. (laughs) And Kelly would make sure it didn't happen. So, uh, you know, this might mean this might have consequences for for Kelly as well. But just to the choice again, I mean, it is properly Nixonian to choose someone because of the way it will piss off your perceived enemies of the moment. Yeah, but, you know, I mean, at least Nixon, I mean, he, he did. You have to give him this. He did choose people who were kind of qualified for the jobs that they were supposed to do. I, I have real serious problems about Henry Kissinger, but you can't say that he was he qualified, was yeah. really an idiot when it came to international <laughs> politics or something, you know? So Bolton is mainly qualified by the extremism of his views. And at the moment, that means an extremism on North Korea and Iran. But just give me first the sort of a little bit of Bolton's history and mm-hmm. orientation. Why is he someone who so strikes fear into the hearts of moderate, sensible people like you who know about him? Let me. Well, it's not just moderate, sensible people. Let me. You know, uh, Bolton entered the Bush administration. He was the Under Secretary of State for Arms Control, which was kind of a joke because he's never read an arms control treaty that he liked. But Cheney put him there to be kind of his spy at the State Department, to spy on Colin Powell, to make sure that Powell wasn't about to do something, you know, outrageously diplomatic. So he was like Undersecretary of State for preventing arms control. That's right, for preventing arms control and a lot of other things. So after Powell got the boot, Cheney wanted to make him Deputy Secretary of State. 
Condi Rice, who came into the secretary, said absolutely not because she didn't like his obstructionist ideology, and she also knew that he was just a pain to deal with. So as a compromise, Bush nominated him to be UN ambassador. Okay, there were, this, this is a guy who once said there's no such thing as the United Nations, who said if you chopped off 10 floors of the UN General Secretariat building, it wouldn't matter. And also, we should not follow international law, even if... It was in our short-term interest to do so because anybody who emphasizes international law does so just to constrain American power. Uh, you know, I mean, they, what does the UN do? They enforce international law, right? So it was a bizarre appointment, whatever you thought of him otherwise. So he went through these hearings. Now, this, the Republicans controlled the Senate then, so they controlled the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The hearings were so contentious, and he was so just outrageously terrible that the committee reported him out to the floor without recommendation. They, they almost just turned it down, but they decided, well, let's let the floor deal with this. Bush, sensing that he was about to be trounced on the floor, Congress went on break. Bush made him a, a recess appointee. But, you know, there, there's a law. If, if, if somebody has made a recess appointee, in 18 months, the Senate can come back and demand a vote. So there was a second set of hearings with Bolton in 2006. And he came off even worse than he did. I wrote some columns for Slate about this. He came off even worse. I mean, for example, there, you know, there was this one Republican senator who was trying to make him look good and said, well, um, uh, Mr. Ambassador, you've been at the UN now for 18 months. Uh, have you changed your mind at all about, about the place? And, you know, this was an opportunity where he, could, where he could say even something like, oh, yeah, you know, it does some interesting things. No, he said, not really. <laughs> so Bush knew that he was going to get beat in committee this time, so they withdrew the nomination. Yeah. So when you talk about Ambassador Bolton, he was an ambassador for 18 months with absolute, you know, it's not just never, con never confirmed. People. The Republican Senate was not going to approve him. Fred, I mean, I, I keep hearing people say that, that Bolton is dangerous because he's effective bureaucratically. I mean, the way you describe him, it's just the opposite. This is a yeah, guy no, who... I, could, I don't yeah. see that as one of his dangers. Yeah. No, um, he's, he's, if, to the extent there are still people in the bureaucracy who can resist him, you know, there's, there's a mass exodus going on. Uh, I was telling a friend the other day that I was, after Bolton was, um, was appointed, I said, I wonder what books... James Mattis is, is browsing tonight. There, there, there's going to be a lot of bureaucratic clashing, and, he, and he's, not, he's not very good in that. But, you know, he comes off as kind of a tough guy. Trump might like his, his abrasive style until, of course, it, it, uh, it, it hits him. We'll, we'll, it, it's, it's, I would say this might be the, the worst thing that's happened in this realm since Trump was elected. And I, I know that's saying a lot. The most dangerous thing in a way. Yeah, but it, very I mean, dangerous. I mean, let, let's make a few things clear. You know, he's not, you know, a lot of Republicans, they talk about peace through strength, you know, whatever. This guy is in favor of regime change through war. And, and unlike some neocons who, who want to spread American power for the sake of promoting democracy or something like that, no, he has nothing. He, he's like a, a classic 18th century imperialist. It is just about spreading American power, which, you know, 
if you run the whole world, maybe, you know, maybe you can get away with it, but it's not like that anymore. He has, and not just 10, 20 years ago, but recently, within the past few weeks, he's written op-eds or made statements on Fox advocating a first strike against North Korea. Now, to do it now, he's advocating not not just trashing the Iran nuclear deal, which I think now Trump will do, but also attacking Iran. Regime change in Iran. So pause on North Korea for a minute, Fred. Yeah. I mean, not, not to uh, fixate on consistency, which we're never going to find with Trump, but he just uh, announced that he's going to be negotiating directly with North Korea. He mm-hmm. has personally attached himself to an approach which is diametrically the opposite of the extreme super hawk bombing position that Bolton has picked. So is is it how do you explain that incoherence? Is it just incoherence or is it a negotiating strategy? But how if you want to negotiate with North Korea, do you appoint as your top foreign policy advisor the guy who wants to not negotiate with Korea, North Korea and bomb them instead? And and you know, let's keep in mind here, not just Bolton, but also the incoming nominated Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, you know, Tillerson was one who wanted to have uh, a diplomatic solution. Pompeo has been much more hawkish. Mattis is still the lone guy out there saying that, you know, war would be a bad idea and uh, let's try for diplomacy. So, yeah, what this really does, it tips the balance more. But, you know, it is an interesting question in this sense. A lot of people have said about uh, Trump, well, you know, maybe, you know, it's like they they invoke uh, the madman theory. You know, make, make, make the other guy think that you're crazy and he'll come to the table and, and negotiate and maybe surrender some of the stuff you want him to get rid of. And people think, well, maybe, maybe that's what Trump is doing with all this bellicose talk. He, he's, he's creating a situation where North Korea feels pressured. They have to give up something. Maybe so, but that's not what Bolton is interested in at all. He just thinks that uh, not just the nuclear weapons, but the Kim regime has to go. So how do you, if you're Bolton, how do you play this with North Korea? I mean, on Monday, Trump is talking. On Tuesday, he's bombing. But he's hired you, and you're the one who actually wants a preemptive strike against North Korea. How do you get, how do you deal with the the talks that Trump has set in motion and that presumably are actually going to happen? Well, before he got this job, back in the day when South Korea was proposing these talks, uh, Bolton said on Fox TV that this is a terrible idea. They're yeah, he's on record ag- he's a, a, against them. Uh, he's on record against them, yeah. but they're going to happen, or do you think he can derail them? Well, I mean, you know, the way things are going, I kind of hope that they get derailed somehow. It could be uh, worse than having no talks at all. But no, they'll probably happen. And uh, I mean, I mean, one thing about Bolton, and, and uh, in, in some ways this is admirable, although I think it, it really grows mainly out of his... Uh, lack of any political astuteness, he doesn't say one thing to one group of people and another thing to another group of people. He's pretty consistent on everything. And he's very confident in his viewpoints. And he doesn't, you know, it's like that, that, that quote, that, 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 that exchange that I quoted from the Senate hearing, somebody gave him a chance to come off uh, like like a flexible guy, you know, do you, do you feel differently about the UN uh, now that you've been there for 18 months? And he said, no, not really. 
he will he will speak his mind. Um, so, Fred, talk to me for a minute about the Iran nuclear agreement. There, Trump has been consistent and seems to be consistent with Bolton. They both dislike it and want to get rid of it. And maybe Trump has been talked in off the ledge by previous advisors. But Bolton is presumably going to be trying to talk him further out onto the ledge and then off the ledge in terms yeah. of, of th- abrogating the agreement. Yeah. Uh, Bolton has been adamantly opposed to uh, the Iran nuclear deal from the very beginning, just as much as Trump, maybe more so. His main goal is to impede any kind of Iranian political action and to overthrow the regime. I haven't ever heard Trump go quite that far. But yeah, you're absolutely right. In May, uh, there is going to be another moment when Trump has to sign a waiver of the sanctions against Iran pending, uh, you know, the International Atomic Energy Agency once again attesting that Iran ha- is abiding by the deal. And Trump is, has, has threatened a few times before this that oh, I'm, gonna re- I'm, gonna, I'm not going to waive it the next time. I'm going to reapply sanctions. And you're right. Uh, McMaster kind of talked him out of that. A combination of McMaster, Tillerson, and Mattis kind of talked him out of that the last time, and maybe a little bit Kelly, too. Not because any of those people are big fans of the Iran nuclear deal, but they see it as better than no deal. And they see that reimposing sanctions when the entire European Union is not could, put, could isolate us in world politics on a number of issues. Now he's got Bolton, who will absolutely press him to, to stay true to his instincts, uh, you've got Pompeo isn't a big fan of the, of the nuclear deal either. Uh, so the, the, to the extent that he's influenced by people around him, the balance is now shifted. And, you know, we, we have we have Trump stating in the last few weeks, you know, there are, re, there are reports that that he feels much more at home in the White House. He thinks that he's really got this president thing down. <laughs> he's going to he's going to pay attention to his own instincts more. When he got rid of Tillerson, he said, I, I'm on the verge of, of getting the, the kind of cabinet and other things that I really want. This is what, he, you know, let, let's pay attention here. This is something new. So last question, serious question. If Bolton is, is interested in having a war with North Korea and a war with Iran, does he pursue them both simultaneously or does one come first? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. He, he's been so far out of power throughout most of the years that we've... Uh, been confronted with him, I don't think he's ever had to really think about tactics here. I don't know how much Bolton, I I don't know to what degree Bolton has ever really looked at a war plan, you know, called the chief, been been part of a briefing where the Joint Chiefs come in and, uh, you know, they say, okay, well, okay, you want to do this? Well, here's what it's going to take. And they lay out, you know, how many ships and how many planes and how many boats for the evacuation, and how many bombs need to be dropped here, and how we need to attack the anti-air missiles before the, the full attack comes in, and what the collateral damage is going to be. I don't think he's ever, you know, there, there's this thing, an old professor of mine in graduate school talked about the, uh, the illusion of small-scale maps. You know, you look at a, at a map and you see Iran, oh, that looks like a small place. North Korea, though, that looks like a small place. You don't realize how big these places are. You don't realize quite how vast are the distances 
between where your stuff, where your manpower, your soldiers, your, your airmen, your, your bases are, to where they have to go, and what it takes, how long it takes to go there and back, and what you need for the logistics. It's a hellishly complex operation, quite, quite aside from, from any of the, the, the moral and, and strategic obstacles. I don't think he's ever really looked at this. He's, a, he's an armchair warrior. And, and somebody who, who has so little doubt about the rightness of his views and so little experience at actually dealing with their consequences when played out on the real live global stage is, is a terribly dangerous person. Well, uh, six months from now when Trump fires him over whatever disaster <laughs> he's caused, you know what the stories are going to say. They're going to say, he just couldn't handle the mustache. Just couldn't handle the arrogance. No, he's oh. going to say the mustache just oh, the drove mustache. Trump, see, that's drove him crazy. I used to say, you know, Trump has kind of a famous, he, he famously detests facial hair. Alternately, so, if, uh, Bol- if Bolton shaves it off, it'll mean he's there for a long haul. We know haul. we're in serious trouble yeah. if Bolton shaves that, shaves that mustache. I've been speaking to Fred Kaplan. He's the author of Slate's War Stories called Fred. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you. We'll be back with more Trumpcast in a minute. But before we do that, you might have missed this story. But as a condition of his bail, Paul Manafort has to wear not one, but two electronic monitors. There's one for his pending trial in Virginia, and the other is for his pending trial in the District of Columbia. Sometimes the right ankle doesn't know what the left ankle is doing. right leg um i think mr manafort is asleep oh yes finally he's had such a long day Ugh. yeah well probably it was a great day for you what no why me my day's kind of boring the left leg does all the fun stuff the left leg does none of the fun stuff are you kidding me i watch you all day this is great i, I report back to dc and i feel like i'm reporting nothing you were crossed up over the knee during the football game you well, could see it. I was under the coffee table. Well, hey, yeah, but at least you have that cool ring on that middle toe. <sighs> Come on. Once you've seen it, you've seen it. Well, I've never seen it. I'm the leg that he just shakes nervously when he's sitting at a desk. Do you know how frustrating that is? Look, I mean, that's movement. That's motion. It's that's repeti- that's data that you get to report. You get to do a job. It's repetitive. I feel like right ankle just sits there all day. Just sits there all day. Are you kidding? You were the leg that got uh, that got that got stubbed on the on the stair. Oh, you think that was fun? Well, it that sure was looked... a bloody horror show. I've never seen a toe bleed so much. Well, at least it was dramatic. I, I we both pace a lot. I'll tell you that much. That's true. I mean, that's and one that's thing. Fun. That's one thing we have in common. Yeah, but what am I? And I I'm not a Fitbit. I'm an ankle monitor. I really I value my job. Oh gosh, man, being a Fitbit would be so much more fun. Oh god, that would be great. At Just least you regular have a goal. people and Just they a... and they can go anywhere. Oh man, if I was a Fitbit, I'd be one of the ones that measure your heartbeat as well. Oh, oh. I think there's something romantic about that. I feel yeah. like all I measure is amount oh, of Oh, he's rolling over. Oh. He's rolling over. He's rolling over. Oh. oh. Oh man, I'm pinned underneath you again. Hey, sorry, it's not me. <sighs> really be nice if you could just move a little bit. I can't control the leg. Ugh, he has a sleep number bed and it's so soft. I'm just like sunk deep in it. Well, he won't stay in one position for very long. Oh, that's true. He He's moves a, a shifty ton. guy. Shifty. Very shifty. 
That sketch was improvised here in our studio by Steve Waltine and Asher Perlman of The Opposition with Jordan Klepper. Joining me on the line is Harry Littman. He's a former U.S. attorney and deputy assistant attorney general. He also teaches law at the University of California, San Diego. We spoke briefly yesterday, Harry, but I'm calling you back because, well, there have been a few more developments. Thanks for joining me the second time around. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So we, we, today, we, It's a daily date. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, we'll see who else Trump fires. We spoke yesterday, and uh, you predicted that he would let his John Dowd, one of his uh, lead lawyers dealing with the special counsel, go. And in fact, Trump has done that today, or I guess technically Dowd has resigned, but maybe a step ahead of, ahead of being fired. Why do you think Dowd is getting out of there? Well, I think a few things. First, you know, it was reported that he was infuriated at the hiring of the Geneva which appears to have been done without his, his input, or really without almost anybody's input except uh, Fox News and, and a couple friends of Trump. So that's quite an affront to the person who sees himself as the head of the legal team. I think he also envisioned, probably correctly, that there would be a, uh, you know, the town wasn't big enough for the both of them, both the Geneva and, and, and him. And, the, you know, he also has uh, made a couple blunders over the course of the last few months that, to me, made it seem like he would have to go at one time or another because he's made himself a witness here. Remember the tweet that Trump first said uh, he was aware of Blinn's That's Michael uh, contacts with the Russians when he fired him? And Dowd then quickly scrambled to say that, oh, it was it was Dowd. I wrote that. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, which was totally, totally implausible. Yes, but that's a fairly critical juncture. And and he and and the only person who can really testify to that is Dowd. And what happens to your attorney client privilege when you do that? Is it is it gone if you're a witness uh, in that in that instance? Well, well, basically, no, I I don't think it initiates the, the privilege all in all, but it just a lawyer is not supposed to be uh, both a witness and an advocate in the same uh, proceeding. So it's a textbook error that normally disqualifies you from representation. And he had had another one like that as well. So so it seemed like, you know, he couldn't be the front and center guy, at least in court. And I, I think the big thing is the hiring of the Geneva and the sense that he was uh, had been relegated to a second place a second seat sort of status and without his consent. That in particular was a big blow to his dignity. But there was also a weird incident over the weekend where where Dowd said to a reporter, I think for the Daily Beast, that Rosenstein should fire Mueller and said that that was Trump's view and then came back later the same day and said, no, 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 that's just my view. So clearly there's some behind-the-scenes strategy confusion going on. Yes, I mean he calls her back and says, "Oh, did I say the president? I meant, I meant that's my." That's <laughs> I often my confuse own. myself uh, with my clients. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I identify so fervently with them. So uh, yeah, I mean that's that's both the problem of the same ilk, but also a sense of a of you know the uh, of a Keystone Cop uh, approach. Now it's not clear that that Trump cares about these sorts of things. I, he seems a very unsophisticated client, and I, I think for to him the currency uh, of the realm is just bulldog loyalty, and he seemed to think 
you know, for no good reason. Dad's a perfectly aggressive guy, but just because the uh, probe hasn't gone away, I think he somehow blames the uh, lack of vigor or aggressiveness of his counsel, and, and he's gone for a real flamethrower into Geneva. So I, I think in part the, the um, it's also true that the hiring of the Geneva is an implicit assignment of blame to Dowd and Cobb just for what? For not having it made it all go away, which, of course, you know, Ted Olson himself would not have been able to do at this juncture. It's that we've got a long road to go, and, and Trump seems utterly unaware of where things stand and, and how much is, is left to uh, still explore. I mean, Trump's favorite words in the English language are, you're, you know, you're absolutely right, Mr. President. He likes to hear those five <laughs> words a lot. And inevitably, he gravitates towards people who say that to him in the most uh, sycophantic, uh, slavering way. And it seems like Dowd, being, you know, in some respects, a good, at least a good lawyer, didn't just tell him what he wanted to hear. For one thing, he said, I want to stop you. I want to prevent you from having to testify before the special counsel because it's going to put you in a bind. And that wasn't what Trump wanted to hear. And you tell Trump what he doesn't want to hear at his peril. Yeah, that's right. And particularly with respect to his counsel, he wants not only yes men, but he he has in mind, remember, he said, where is my Roy Cohn about uh, Jeff Sessions? He, He wants to have a, a, you know an absolute sort of mad dog attack force in his in his legal staff that's you know where where what Michael Cohen like sees he sees that. on Fox News that that's where he got Joe De, De Genova. he's like why can't I have one of those yeah yeah I want I want one of those too and and uh, he has an instinct that seems to me 180 degrees wrong but he has the instinct that that's the most effective kind of counsel in this uh, setting. And he measures it, moreover, by results. So Dowd, I think, doesn't fit the bill. Why? Just because the probe hasn't gone uh, away. And, you know, he wants he wants results, and if not, he wants heads. And uh, Dowd is the latest. But let's talk about Joe DeGeneva for a minute, because in addition to being a Fox pundit and a conspiracy theorist, he has some relevant, interesting background. He was a special counsel himself. And I mean, this I remember this these days when there were so many special counsels. But at the end of the if I've got this right, George H.W. Bush administration, there was this little furor about them looking into Bill Clinton's passport file to try to find out if he'd gone to Russia as a graduate student. And they thought there maybe there was some political meddling there. And Joe DeGeneva took I think three years investigating three that, years. and then exactly. said, you know, three years on that on that teeny matter, no no charges, yeah. but so you know, kind of yeah. hurts their case for let's let's wrap this far far bigger investigation up. But also, Joe DeGeneva was associated with the eccentric position, as I understand it, in in, in terms of constitutional law, that a special counsel can indict a sitting president, not just recommend or refer impeachment charges to the House, but actually issue a criminal indictment. That's the most anti-Trump argument someone could believe in right now. And Trump picked this guy for his lawyer. You know, my best sense is whether, whether this is by design or happenstance, those kinds of oh inconsistencies or or you know un- uncomfortable contradictions 
really are not going to be that significant at the um, the level at which this will play out. The sort of you know political kind of shouting level. Uh, especially in Congress. So I, I, I did say, and I, I believe that DeGeneva is basically a political actor and that he um, has hurt himself in particular with, with this, um, if I can use the legal term, for cocked um, <laughs> uh, theory about the, the FBI. But, you know, he's not... He Nobody expects him to be consistent or cares, cares what he said I 10 think, years a, ago. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And two, he does have some bona fides. You know, he and his wife are, are genuine white-collar practitioners, and he knows his way around town. So, I, I, yeah, it, uh, that's right. He, he, he took flatly contrary positions, but I think that's kind of gambling in the casino. I just think... To the extent, and you know, one would hope that this that this is the way it will play out, but you can see many many ways in which it wouldn't. But to the extent, what um, the the judgment here is made on the basis of reason, principle, precedent, legal argument, etc. He's not the the absolute top drawer Washington practitioner. There was another tantalizing tidbit in the, the New York Times story about this. It said that he's talking again to Mark Kazowitz, who was sidelined, but has apparently been been chatting with him by phone. What do you think Kazowitz has been telling him? Yeah, well, first, what an interesting feature of this guy. He has incredibly acrimonious divorces with, <laughs> you know, we're talking Steve Bannon and, you know, all kinds of associates. And then all of a sudden, you, you know, a couple months later, oh, they're talking and, and, and they're back. I'm waiting for the the, the mooch to be uh, you yeah. know, back in, in <laughs> Hey, Rance. Hey, mooch. Yeah. Well, you know, he <laughs> goes where he has to for the for the flattery, right? And these people, they are kind of like beaten dogs, right? I mean, they just right. they, they come they come crawling back to him. But Kasowitz, as best I can tell from the kind of lawyering he did for him in the New York real estate world, is telling him, go forward, go give it to him, you know, make him make him afraid, shake him up. You know, the kind of way they're trying to play the Stormy Daniels case, say. But nobody's going to intimidate Robert Mueller uh, <laughs> with that with that kind of uh, uh, approach. But I assume Kasowitz is saying go very aggressive. Now, you know, your point is the, is the salient one, Jacob. The, you know, the important uh, strategic question now is to what extent does, does Trump try to cooperate and try to answer questions? And even if you generally want the, somebody in the Kasowitz model, a sort of flamethrower, that, that certainly doesn't fit the bill for this question. You, you can't just tell Mueller to take a hike when he wants to talk to you. The, the federal courts stand ready, I think. It'll, it'll be more of a battle than many people think. But I think the federal courts stand ready to say, you've got to sit down and answer questions under oath. And now he's in a, a terrible fix. And Trump is reportedly not, not having gotten Ted Olson. He's reportedly uh, still considering someone named Emmett T. Flood, which just makes me think of Elmer T. Fudd, right. um, who represented Clinton during impeachment. Was uh, I don't remember much about uh, Emmett T. Flood. What, what can you tell us about him? Uh, he's a he's a top flight guy. He's the kind of guy that Trump, in fact, does does need. Of course, he's at Williams and Connolly, and we talked about this yesterday. There's some real downsides for a firm like Williams and Connolly, especially with its sort of 
democratic roots of taking on Trump as a client. But 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 Flood is a top flight guy who knows how to deal with the special counsel, knows how to deal with the federal courts would be a good choice for him. But I, uh, I, I think he's unlikely to uh, accept. And, uh, and then also, of course, you hear rumors that uh, Alan Dershowitz is kind of auditioning for the, for the role. I, I think not, would, would not be a, a, um, a good choice. But whoever is chosen, let's say he get, he's able to be lucky enough to get a flood, there's still going to be this extra problem for uh, somebody like that. Because there will be a power struggle with the likes of Joe DeGeneva or whoever is in that, that role. And normally, when you accept that kind of engagement, you make 100% clear with the client that you're in charge and he'll back you. You can never take that sort of assurance to the bank with Trump. Trump could say, yes, you'll run the show, and that'll last for a day and a half. So it's a, it's a very perilous kind of engagement for anyone to take. But Flood, I think, if I were advising Trump, he would ignore me. But if I were advising Trump, I would say of all the names floated around, Flood is by far the, uh, the, the best choice for him. I mean, you don't have the choice from a huge roster of experienced impeachment defense attorneys, right? I mean, this is not like a DUI in, in Broward County. I mean, they're right, not, right. there are very few people who've, who've done who've defended it, and he's, he's one of them. That's right. And, and there are special considerations. But I think very fine Washington white-collar defense lawyers are used to the kind of public relations-type aspects of these high-profile investigations. So, um, uh, you know, Jeffress, who represented Scooter Libby, uh, you know, there are, there, are, uh, there are 20, 25 people. Uh, Kushner's lawyer, Abby Lowell, would be an example. You know, it takes a different set of strategic considerations, but a, a sophisticated player in D.C. who also has unquestioned legal chops would be able to navigate those waters, I think, fine as opposed to all the names that, that have yet been in his stable and that he seems to be considering. He could always bring Michael Cohen over from the private cover-up side. The advantage of that was go. Cohen could just say, he doesn't need to testify, I'll testify. <laughs> what an interesting guy, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I so think I... he's got his pension plan covered. I mean, you know, <laughs> loyal. there's one answer that never steers him wrong. It's loyalty. That, that's right. I've been speaking to the lawyer and law professor, Harry Lippman. Harry, thanks for joining me on the show. Thank you, Jacob. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon, Steve Waltine, and Asher Perlman of The Opposition with Jordan Klepper improvised that sketch here in our studio. Also, I have an announcement. We're expanding our coverage of voting rights especially around issues like gerrymandering and voter suppression, which are going to be so crucial in 2018 and 2020. Writers at Slate are investigating the key legislative battles and court cases in the state and federal courts. And they're also trying to create new tools to help readers understand how the electoral sausage gets made. So we're asking readers and listeners to help fund our voting rights coverage. Find out how you can support our work today at slate.com slash voting rights. That's slate.com slash voting rights. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.